It's great to see you. Would you uh, pray with me? Lord God, we ask that you would help us now uh, to preach. And God, I really mean that when I say us, that it would be all of us, uh, including you, Lord God, because I can't do this. We can't comprehend your word. And yet, Lord God, your word can and does comprehend us. So comprehend us, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. I once read a story, I guess it's a true story, about these two Tibetan boys that decided to go for a walk in 1941 because they wanted to see the world. They went hiking over the mountains and they ended up in Soviet territory where they were conscripted by the Soviet army. Uh, after a time in the Soviet army, they were captured by the Germans and they were conscripted into the auxiliary service of the German army. And after a time there, they were captured by the Americans and the Americans couldn't figure out who they were because they didn't speak German or uh, Russian. And so they called in some Asiatic language experts that interviewed these two uh, young men and heard their incredible story. And when they were finished, the stunned Americans, they asked the two young boys, well, do you have any questions? And they only had one. Why were all those people trying to kill each other? Isn't that great? I mean, do you ever feel like that? Do you ever have a question like that? Why are all these, why is everybody trying to kill you? I mean, every day you hear about a new shooting, right? A school shooting, some mass shooting. If I was one of those Tibetan boys, this is what I'd want to know. Who's to blame? And then I'd blame the Russians and, and maybe Joseph Stalin. And after that, I'd blame the Germans and maybe Adolf Hitler. Hitler and the Germans. And of course, the Germans blame the Treaty of Versailles and the Jews. Some Christians blame the Jews for crucifying Christ, but to be a Christian is to confess that your sins crucified uh, the Christ. And, and if that's true, well, who could Christ blame? Everyone, right? He could blame everyone. He could accuse everyone, even the boys from Tibet, couldn't he? So maybe we're all to blame. Well, maybe blame is to blame. My friend uh, Mike Owens shared this fascinating little TED Talk with me recently. In it, a doctor of philosophy, Greg Caruso, points out that recent psychological and sociological studies have correlated a belief in free will with an increase uh, in religiosity, punitiveness, and a desire to blame. To blame. We've been talking about free will, and hear me closely, people mean different things by free will, but I think most would agree that it's pretty hard to blame folks without some sort of belief in free will. It's the belief that we know the good and the evil and can choose the good in freedom, so if people don't choose the good, they're to blame. If no one's to blame, then no one has free will. I mean, without free will, it's, it's hard to blame. And, and yet, if no one has free will, everyone seems to be no one. I mean, everyone seems to be inhuman, right? Then if there's no free will, we're not really even people. We're like, like robots. And yet, there are some people that we don't usually blame because we don't think they have free will. Those people are called children. They can't freely choose the good, for they don't yet have the knowledge of the good. They don't have it, and yet we expect them to get it. And so we call them people. Jesus said you must become like little children to enter the kingdom. Well, anyway, I was just pointing out that we're all looking for someone to blame. Usually, you know, when I point out that Scripture clearly teaches uh, that in Christ God will reconcile all things to himself and, and even states, behold, I make all things new. Whenever I point that out, people will immediately say, well, what about free will? What about Adolf Hitler? And I understand what they're saying. They're saying, I need someone to blame. I need somebody to accuse. I need someone to hate. Scripture says God hates so what is hate for? 
Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and Cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Catestio, consume it by eating. Eat it. Two sermons ago, which was four weeks ago, we preached that the Ark of God's Covenant is a picture of his judgment. Remember? Which is his will. And his will is absolutely free. The Ark of the Covenant is like the free will of God. We defined free will as a will that wills what it will without the restraint of any other will. And so a truly free will is the undetermined determiner. The uncaused cause. The uncreated Creator, the ground of all being, I am that I am, the Lord God. God does what he wills and he wills what he does. God is one. God is love. And the Ark of the Covenant is a revelation of love. Remember the Ark literally is the law of God covered by the mercy of God and on top of the Ark a a lamb is standing as if it had been slain. Jesus is the free will of God. He's the Word of God that creates all things. You can't get any more free than that. He creates reality. And now this is the revelation of the great mystery hidden for ages and generations. At the blast of the seventh trumpet, at the opening of the seventh seal, uh, like the dawn of the seventh day of creation, the ark is seen within the temple. And God's temple is us. That was two sermons ago. One sermon ago, we preached that we are the woman crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth to the good free will of God. So we can't make good, but we must all give birth to the good. We can't create Jesus, in other words, but we will give birth to Jesus. Jesus said, whoever does the will of God is my mother. And I think he meant it. The good free will of God is Jesus, and the good free will of God in human flesh is his body. We are his bride, his mother, and even his body begotten from from above. Uh, The dragon stands before the woman so he can eat the baby. The dragon is evil. St. Paul writes, hate what is evil and cleave to what is good. It's a word used for uh, the sacrament of communion in the covenant of marriage. Cleave. It seems that you can eat the good or be married to the good and even give birth to the good, and Jesus says God alone is good. The dragon tempted Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of the good and make herself good, in the image of God. There's one realization that's helped me understand the Bible and even myself, perhaps more than any other realization, except of course for that it all means Jesus. And that realization is that the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Calvary on Mount Zion where Jesus was crucified, and the Garden in the Revelation are all one garden. And in the middle of each garden, there is a tree. And on the tree hangs Jesus. Jesus is the good in flesh like fruit, right? And Jesus is the life. Jesus is the eschatos Adam, the ultimate Adam. And we are the woman, his bride. 
The devil tempted the woman to take the life of the good to make herself good, but when she took the good, she made herself evil and lost her life. The devil tempts us to take the good and consume the good to make ourselves good. That's called sin. So what does a thief do? A thief sees the good, and so he just takes the good, hoping to make himself good. But he makes himself bad. An adulterer sees the good, and so he just takes the good and makes himself bad, and he makes his heart dead. The Pharisees saw the good, so took the life of the good, trying to make themselves good, but they made themselves evil, and everything died. The sun even went black. The earth shook. Everything died. Humanity saw the good, consumed the good, and we all died. Thieves, harlots, Pharisees, all humanity desire the good like you desire pizza. You do, don't you? I, I do. The dragon wants to devour the baby, and he tempts us all to do the very same. The devil tempts us to take the good to make ourselves good, and Jesus wants to receive the good. For in this way, the good makes us himself. So what are we doing when we come to the communion table? Number one, we're confessing our sin. We took knowledge of the good to try to make ourselves good. In other words, we crucified the Christ. We attempted to devour the baby. I cannot think of a more heinous sin that you could ever confess than, than the one we confess when we come to this table. Number one. And number two, number one, we took the life of Christ. And number two, God gave the life of Christ. Christ. Number one, we confess our sin, and number two, we believe God's grace. What we took, God forgave from the foundation of the world. The lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. We're going to read that in the next chapter, chapter 13, verse 8. I can't conceive of a more heinous sin, and, and I can't conceive of a more glorious grace. We took the life of the good on a tree in space and time. That's evil. And God gave the life of the good on a tree from the foundation of the world. That is good. That's life. So at the cross, we gain the knowledge of good and evil. And at the cross, we come to choose the good in freedom. And that's life. That's eternal life, choosing the good in freedom. At the cross, we die with Christ and we rise with Christ. At the cross, we're made in the image of God and it is finished. It's an absolutely stunning picture that I hope you meditate upon forever and ever and ever. But for now, I just hope that you would see that the dragon still tempts us to devour the lamb. The dragon tempts you with the knowledge of good and evil. That's, that's the law. And the good romances you with the love that is himself, body broken and bloodshed. The dragon tempts you to justify yourself. And the lamb wants you to see that you have been justified. The dragon wants you to believe that you can choose to be chosen. That's called pride. And Jesus wants you to know that you have been chosen to choose. That's called gratitude and humility and love and life and communion. The dragon tempts you to desecration and the Lord longs for you to agree with your own creation rather than desecration. The dragon tempts you to devour the baby, and the father longs for you to receive the baby, surrender to the baby, marry the baby, and even give birth to the baby. God longs for you to love as you've been loved. And Satan tempts you to devour love. Verse 4, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, a man-child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, right out of Psalm 2. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. That's the time of trouble in Daniel chapter 12 before the time of the end. Now war arose in heaven. 
Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place, any space for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil. That means accuser. And Satan, that means enemy or adversary, the deceiver of the whole world, the oikumenen. Uh, that's the world of human habitation, humanity. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night, before our God. He, he, he was defeated. Michael and his angels battle the devil and his angels, as prophesied in Daniel 12, but the dragon and his angels, the dragon and his angels are conquered and defeated by the Lamb, just as all of Scripture attests to and all of the Revelation attests to. Remember, we're watching the unwrapping of the scroll because the Lamb has conquered and is standing upon the throne. Colossians, Paul writes this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh hasn't been cut away, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal legal demands, uh, the demands of the law. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, the principalities and powers, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. The devil tempts us to take knowledge of the good, to make ourselves good, and so we make ourselves evil and then he begins to accuse because if he accuses and we believe his accusations what do we do we run and we hide from the lover of our souls we hide in fear and shame and fig leaves and more law but at the cross we see that what we have taken has always been given forgiven. We see that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The cross reveals that all of our debts are null and void. Therefore, all Satan's accusations of sin become what? Declarations of grace. Grace is the eternal reality and sin is a temporal stage on which God's grace is revealed. John 12, one week before he's crucified, Jesus cries out, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Remember in Luke, he even sees Satan fall from heaven. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, and he was speaking of being lifted up on his cross, his tree, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The cross is the boundary between eternal truth and this temporal world of lies. And now is the point when eternity touches time. Now. Our shame and fear only exist in this illusion that we call space and time. Now is the day of salvation. Right now! Right now! Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, says the loud voice from heaven. Jesus is the eternal word that does not change, but that changes all of space and time. Changes the meaning of all of space and time. He fills all of space and time. He is the word of God, the logos of love that binds all things together. And this is the plan, says Paul, for the fullness of time. To fill chaos with logos. In 395 A.D., church father Gregory of Nyssa said that Christ's divinity was hidden under his humanity like a fishhook under bait. John wrote, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot comprehend it. Doesn't, doesn't, just can't get it. 
Christ's divinity was hidden under his humanity like a fish hook under bait, and Satan, like a ravenous fish, gulped it down. In most ancient cultures surrounding Israel, maybe all of them, there was this myth of, a, of a, the chaos monster, a, a sea monster, dragon, or serpent that made war against everything good. It, it was chaos that longed to swallow the logos, and at the cross, I believe that it did. I believe that the dragon did just that. I think maybe this is my favorite depiction of what happened at the cross. Save me! Eat me! about my face for something bad happened to you. Too late. If you remember, that's how they saved the galaxy because the dragon had also swallowed the, the galaxy. But anyway, at the, at the cross, the temporal lie that is the devil swallowed the eternal truth who is Jesus the Christ. Darkness swallowed the light of the world. Death swallowed the life. And that was the death of death. Chaos swallowed the logos, and that was the desecration of desecration. That is creation, and in particular, it's the creation of you. At the cross, it is finished. Satan can no longer accuse before God. Satan no longer has a leg to stand on, quite literally, for this is the judgment of God. Because you have done this, upon your belly you shall go. That's how the dragon becomes the snake. On your belly you will go, and the seed of the woman, says God, will crush the head of the snake. So the dragon has been defeated. And yet we still battle, don't we? Verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him. Do you know Paul says that we are already seated in the heavenly places? Is that crazy? And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives, their psyches, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Do you dwell in heaven or on earth? In the earth. You who dwell in them. But woe, woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. The devil's time is short. He does not rule over some eternal kingdom called hell. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down into the earth, he pursued the woman who had, been given, who had given birth to the male child. Literally, the man. In Hebrew, ha-adam. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle. They that wait on the Lord will mount up with wings uh, like eagles, says Isaiah, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. We preached a whole sermon on that last summer. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth, this is what we preached about, came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. He's going to call up the principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness to help him do battle. About 20 years ago, I prayed kind of a ridiculous prayer. I remember, you know, would you ever pray those prayers? You just remember when you did it. And I, I remember I was sitting in my office up at the little church up on Lookout Mountain, and I prayed this prayer. I said, God, Jesus, whole Trinity thing confuses me. Um, I just want you to be more real to me. And then I said, I would even pray for people with demons if you would just be more real to me. 
Ten years before, you see, I'd seen a man delivered of a demon at a Presbyterian church, and it utterly terrified me. Because <laughs> it, 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 it wasn't acting. I knew, knew the people. <laughs> it terrified, the demon terrified me. Even more, the, the power of Jesus terrified me. And so I prayed this prayer. Uh, and soon after, God answered my prayer. I was introduced to this woman who became a close friend who it turns out had been raised in a coven, horrifically abused, and ritually wed to Satan. For about seven years, we dealt with a host of demons. I suspect that many of those are fallen angels, those stars that are swept down with the swipe of the dragon's tail. But for seven years, we dealt with a host of demons, and after that, Susan and I met the dragon. Since then, I've prayed for a lot of people struggling with demons. In some, at times, the evil spirits will take over the person's body such that they're not aware of what's happening, and the Spirit will use the body to speak their lies to me and whoever's with me. It's disconcerting. For when it happens, you realize that the lies they speak are lies that, like, enter your thoughts every day. They almost always convey the message that God doesn't want to save or God isn't able to save. Uh, in a word, God is not salvation. God is not Yeshua, Yahashua. When you hear the lies from demons, you realize that you also hear them from people. And then you realize that the lies didn't simply come from those people. And then worst of all, you realize that sometimes you're one of those people that speaks those lies. St. Paul wrote, we battle not against flesh and blood. Did you hear? Let me say that again. We battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness. So on several occasions, I've had evil spirits, and through a couple of those people, a couple of those people now, I, I met the dragon. It's so very, very, very hard to talk about because many people have never witnessed such things. And many, many, many people fake such things. It's so very hard to talk about because the evil is just so profoundly evil. And we all want to deny evil. We all want to deny the, uh, the evil one. And by that I mean uh, pretend that, 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 that nothing's there, and yet in this amazing way nothing is there. But we'll get to that in a minute. It's so very, very hard to talk about, for the evil is so evil, and yet the people it infects can be so very good. Never forget that it was to St. Peter that Jesus turned and said, Get behind me, Satan. It's so very hard to talk about because I really don't know what evil is or the evil one is, but I have a pretty good idea of what he's not. It's so very, very hard to talk about because like John says in verse 9, he is the deceiver of the whole world. The whole world. The whole world is under the power of the evil one, he writes in 1 John 5, 19. He's defeated, but the whole world's under the power. We know that we are from God, but the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. It's so really very, very, very hard to talk about, and yet once I encountered the dragon, I must tell you that I found it so very, very, very hard to accuse anyone or blame anyone, any people. And I began to feel as if I had found what hatred is for. This is a bit surprising to me, but I couldn't find, I looked this week using my computer, I couldn't find a verse in Scripture where it says in a good translation that, that God will blame or accuse anyone. He, he will judge everyone. That means cut the evil from, from the good. He'll judge everyone, but it never says that he accuses or blames anyone. Remember what Jesus said on the tree as he hung in the garden on Calvary? He cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If they don't know what they do, who can blame them for choosing to do what they do? And who is, who is they? Well, it's you, and it's me. For sure, it's some Roman centurions and some Pharisees. They knew they crucified a man, but they did not know that this man was the good in flesh or the life. 
that flows through all creation. They didn't know, but then they began to know. Saying, surely this man was the Son of God. You could say that Jesus blamed them, if by that you meant that Jesus acknowledged that they did what they did. I mean, Jesus was pretty clear about that, right? That's sin, and you, you sinned. But he didn't blame them as if they could have done differently, as if they had uh, what we so loosely call free will. You could say the Lord blamed Eve and all her children, if by that you mean that the Lord acknowledges that we did what we did. He's like, oh yeah, you, you sinned, but he doesn't blame us as if we could have done anything differently, for we couldn't freely choose the good if we didn't know the good, or that the word of God is good. We didn't know the good. But now we do. Or we are beginning to. We are beginning to see that God is good. It was God we crucified. And check this out, God did not accuse. But there is one that does accuse, the accuser. He convinces us that we are free to choose and then we do choose and then he accuses us and blames us for having chosen until we hide in fig leaves and shame from the lover of our souls. And, and by the way, that's our choice. But it's no longer free. For in that state, we are no longer free. We are slaves to sin and the dragon. He is the deceiver of all humanity, writes John. And the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. The whole world. That means they're hostages. You don't blame the hostages. You don't accuse the hostages. You don't compete with the hostages. You're not jealous of the, of the hostages, the prisoners and, and the slaves. You don't blame the hostages. And if you're free, you long to set them free. In my experience, most Christians kind of don't. They don't feel sorry for sinners. They actually accuse sinners and are secretly jealous of sinners, which makes them the worst type of sinners, almost like the accuser himself in human flesh. And so I better long to set them free. We better long to set them free, or we're not free. We too have become dragon flesh. Beware when fighting the dragon, lest you become the dragon, wrote, wrote Nietzsche. And yet, I got to tell you, once I got a good look at the dragon, once I got a good look at the accuser, I find it much hard, harder to, to, to accuse people or, or to blame people. And I think I discovered what hatred is for. In one of his novels, C.S. Lewis describes the strange exhilaration that overcomes one of his characters when he finds himself battling the unman. That's his word for the devil. What was before him, before Ransom, appeared no longer a creature of corrupted will. It was corruption itself, to which will was attached only as an instrument. It is perhaps difficult to understand why this filled Ransom not with horror, but with a kind of joy. The joy came from finding at last what hatred was made for. As a boy with an axe rejoices on finding a tree, so we rejoice in the perfect congruity between his emotion and its object. Paul writes, hate what is evil. And John just called the dragon the evil one. In John 8, Jesus says this, there is no truth in him. Remember, Jesus is the way, truth, and life, right? There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own nature. He's the father of lies, says Jesus. If there's no truth in him, there's no way, truth, or life in him. There's no breath of God in him, and it's the breath of God that makes us people, that makes us persons. And if that's the case, it's not like he was good and then chose to be bad. You know, once I had my friend ask Jesus in a vision, is Satan a somebody? And then she said to me, I just heard him say, no. Satan is not a somebody. He's a nobody. 
Recently, he manifested in another friend, and I said, in the name of Jesus, I send you to the void. And I heard him mutter, I am the void. In prayer, Jesus had us taken back to in the beginning, before there was space for him, before there was time for him, before God created the void, before God created the nothing in the midst of the something that is himself. In John 8, Jesus says this, the devil was a murderer from the beginning, which seems to mean that he was evil in the beginning. So did God create evil? You see, that's like asking, did the light create the dark? Light cannot make dark. Unless the light makes something other than itself, and then by shining on what it's made, the light casts a shadow. Evil is the absence of the good, like a shadow is the absence of light, like a lie is the absence of truth, like death is the absence of the life, like I am not is the absence of I am. Uh, like chaos is the absence of logos, who is the word of I am, through whom all things are created and made. The dragon is the chaos monster. The presence of an absence of the will of God. The early church fathers spoke of the ontological non-subsistence of, of evil. So if the devil is nothing but evil, and, and, and a serpent or a dragon or a fallen angel, I think it must be something God creator created that gets infected with evil. But if the devil is nothing but evil, then ultimately he is nothing at all. So how does a nothing become such a horrifying something? I don't know that my brain can grasp that, but, but many years ago we were praying for our friend when Satan manifested to her and also to my wife. We can see them both. He manifested in just this absolutely horrifying way, threatening great violence. But as we began to pray, he began to shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink until he was finally this little man standing on her coffee table like a cartoon going... And at that, Jesus walked into the room, walked over to the coffee table, picked him up, put him in his pocket, turned, smiled at us, and said, with fear, you put flesh on the evil one. Fear is faith in the devil. But faith in God casts out fear until there is no space and no time for the devil. The devil is the presence of an absence of the will of God, the will of God which creates all things. Evil, listen closely, evil is that which God does not will. And yet God does will that you would encounter evil so you might forever hate the evil and choose the good in freedom. In other words, God is using the devil in time to create us in his image for all eternity. That's the image of love. God is love. Free will is love. You are a child predestined for freedom, the freedom of your father, the one, as Karl Barth defines him, who loves in freedom, who does what he is and is what he does, love. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you will crush the head of the ancient dragon in the process. That's what hate is for. The good is everything, the evil is nothing. You will cleave to the good and abhor the nothing. You will hate desecration and be forever grateful for all creation, in particular yourself, your true self. And so what is hate for? Nothing. You are to hate the nothing. You are to hate nothingness. You are to hate the nothing and fall in love with the something. What is the something? I am that I am God. You hate the nothing by discounting it. You hate a lie, how? By not believing it. You hate lies by loving truth. You hate the nothing by loving the something. At the end of the revelation, the voice from the throne says, Behold, look, I make all things new. You're a thing. 
But I'm not sure that Satan is a thing. I suspect he's more of a no thing, and so there's no thing to make new. And, and if he is a thing, well, he will no longer be the accuser. For in eternity, everything is filled with God, and God is love, and love is free. God is grace. God is reality. God is light, and the devil is shadow. Sometimes I wonder if he's the shadow cast by the creation of Ha'adam, the Adam, humanity. Uh, for God is light, and when we stand before him, we must each cast a shadow. So anyway, how do we battle the dragon? Sometimes, in my experience, it actually does look like that. But in reality, from the perspective of eternity, I suspect that it always looks something a little more like this. That's you and your shadow. The serpent battles the woman with the river that issues from his mouth. He is the father of lies, and the river is a river of lies, and all the lies are based on his original lie. You can take knowledge of the good and freely choose the good and thus make yourself good. In other words, you can make yourself the uncaused cause, the uncreated creator, the Lord God. You see, that's a lie. In John 8, Jesus tells the Pharisees, that they, they are of their father, the devil. Well, the devil can't father children. Not human children. He can't father children. He can only father false children. In other words, lies. Well, and that's what he is. He's the father of lies. He's the father of self-righteousness. He's the father of your ego. It's your ego in which you are imprisoned in fear and shame. It's your ego that causes you to compete with your neighbor, blame your neighbor, accuse your neighbor, bite and devour your neighbor, and then accuse yourself. It's your ego that keeps you in bondage to the fear of death. For you think that you have to create the life when in fact Jesus is the life and you have to lose your life in order to find it. It's your ego that thinks it creates the good who is God. Satan will tell you that your ego is free will. When, in fact, it's the bondage of the will, and you have been enslaved. Little children can't create themselves. They can only create a shadow of themselves. We can't create ourselves, only a shadow of ourselves, but the dragon tells us that this shadow is ourselves. When you will what God does not will, you create a false self. And then the accuser tells you that that false self is your real self, and then terrified of that false self, you try to save yourself, which is only more self, more false self, the product of the, the dragon. Like Jesus told us, with fear, you put flesh on the evil one. I think that may be our own flesh. 
my own flesh, your own flesh. It becomes dragon flesh. And then we have to be undragoned like Eustace in the Chronicles of Narnia. So anyway, why are all those people, Russians, Germans, Americans, Jews, why are all these people running around trying to kill each other? Maybe they're afraid of their shadow. Maybe they're afraid of the shadow, and in particular, their shadow. They are being scared of what? They're being scared of non-being, for they think that they must create being, create themselves, save themselves, and justify themselves. Little children can't create themselves. They can only create a shadow of themselves. In order to truly see themselves, they have to turn around and look into the light. God is light. Our Father is light, and Scripture says we are the apple of His eye. In Hebrew, the ishon of His eye. It literally means the little man reflected in His eye. It's where we get the word pupil from the Latin. We are the, the, the pupil, the little man in His eye. To know who you truly are, you must look into the eyes of your Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, said Jesus. And He prayed, Father, the love you have given to me, you have given to them. In other words, the Father looks at you in the very same way that He looks at Jesus. And so Jesus is God's judgment of you. And so whatever is not true of Jesus is not true of you, the real you. What is it? It's a lie. It's sin. It's your shadow. So how do you battle a lie? You simply see it for what it is. Or should I say what it isn't? How do you battle sin? Therefore consider yourself dead to sin, writes Paul, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's your righteousness, the rightness in you. And how do you battle the shadow? Well, you believe the judgment of God. You take God seriously and you stop taking the dragon so seriously. You expose the shadow to the light. And how do we finally conquer the shadow? We become the light. We believe what we truly are. God is light. Jesus is the light of the world. And we are his temple. It's what John saw at the start of his vision. We're lampstands, remember? To shine the light. If you shine the light, you no longer cast a shadow. And it's what John sees at the end of his vision. He sees the new Jerusalem that is the temple and the bride. She's coming down from God, and she is literally radiant. It's the glory of God. That's her radiance. Her light is the Lamb. You were once darkness, writes Paul, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, children of the light. You were once darkness, but now you are light. From the night that the Lamb was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. The light of the world took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is how he conquers the dragon. He says, eat me. <laughs> so in the morning, what happened? It's so incredible to me. The dragon tempted humanity to take Christ's life. And yet Christ had already given us his life the night before. We consumed the life into our body of death. We ingested the truth into our body of lies. We swallowed the light into our darkness, and Christ rose from the dead, destroying the dragon and setting us free. Uh, another way to say it is that we have conquered by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, loving not our life, our psyche, even unto death. We'll talk about that more next week. But for now, come to the table. Abhor what is evil and cleave to the good. Bride of Christ, in Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen.
came by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, loving not their lives, their psyches, even unto death. See, I think your, your psyche, the thing you call your life, is the shadow, your ego. And so if you've been staring at your shadow, well, you've probably been thinking of things like this. Well, just, just look at myself. Wow, I'm, I'm pretty great. I made myself pretty great. I'm better than Vince, or I'm better than Ted, or I'm better than, and, and I'm pretty something. And, and then it will switch, and all of a sudden you think, no, I'm a piece of shit. I'm worse than them. I'm, 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 I've failed. I'm nothing. I can't, I can't do this. I, I ought to just quit. You see, that's what I think the Bible calls the work of the flesh. So if you've been staring at your shadow, turn around and look into the face of your father and see your reflection. You are the righteousness of Christ, and I believe this is what he's saying to you. Don't you understand? I forgive you. In fact, I have forgiven you from the moment that I thought of you. For you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. I bled for you. Do you see that my blood fills you? Let it be a testimony to you and a testimony to the whole world that I love you and walk in my light. Walk in my light. That's how you overcome the shadow. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen.